it's Chris. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. First of all, it's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You don't have to do any of that work. In addition, you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to the Situation in the Story podcast, where you get to listen in on compelling conversations with authors about their latest work and what's behind it. I'm your host, Chris Moore, a queer writer and educator living in Denver. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Why do you write? I write because for me, it gives me purpose and a chance to really unpack my own experiences and my thoughts about those experiences. Um, I grew up with Cruzon syndrome, which is a craniofacial condition where uh, the bones in the head don't grow. And so from the time I was eight months old, I was in and out of the hospital, a lot of surgeries, a lot of medical appointments. And because of um the level of trauma that I experienced from a very, very early age. And because that trauma was so deeply connected to my identity uh, and my appearance. And um, I don't know, it led to a lot of issues with, you know, self-worth and even just understanding who I am as a person, Mm -hmm. because I would very much have to turn myself off in order to get through things. Mm -hmm. And so there were times when someone would say, are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Uh, Are you tired? And I would just say, I don't know, Mm -hmm. because I was just so disconnected. And so for me, writing was a way to uh, work through everything and to actually be honest with myself and uh, show up for myself and actually allow myself the space to work through what I went through. Mm -hmm. And I think, oh, sorry. I was going to say, I think it's really uh, special to have, you know, a, a, a book out right now. And because I grew up never reading stories about people like me. And I always tell people like, I could not walk into a bookstore and find a single book about somebody like me, not one ever. There were no uh, photos of people like me. There was no one on a television show, on a movie, there was nothing. And so to be able to, I don't know, be that voice that I needed when I was younger feels really special for me. Yeah, so you and you chose to well I I don't know if you originally chose to but um the book is a, like a young adult based mm-hmm. um, genre book. So was that your initial intent? No, actually I don't know that I really had uh an age group in mind and it is a young adult memoir but they um we chose to go young adult because of the crossover. Mm. potential as well because you know the book does start you know with me in middle school and then it kind of goes on to exp- 
band uh, growing up. And then it kind of ends early college, which, you know, would be the young adult years. And so I was like, okay. Um, when I started hearing from agents, every single one was like, this seems like a young adult hmm. memoir. And after the like fourth or fifth person to say that, I was like, Okay, I'm gonna go with you know, <laughs> the, the, I'm gonna go with this. This, yeah. this seems like they might be onto something. I'm not the expert, and so yeah. when I found my agent uh, and we talked about it, it made a lot of sense for me because it was the book I needed at that age. And in my head, I was like, what do you mean young adult? What do you mean adult? It's for everybody. And she's like, no, but like, okay, that's fine. But from a marketing perspective, like, would it be, who are you targeting? I was like, everybody. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, after that, I, I got on board with it being young adult really quickly. Um, again, because the like most traumatic, I guess, experiences that I talk about in the book are when I was 12 and, and onward. And so that felt, it felt right. Yeah. I think, yeah, like you said, you know, walking, never having, never being able to see yourself in, in a book, I think, you know, people still feel that way, especially at that age. And, you know, yeah. I had, I had a, an accident when I was 13, uh, right before high school started, end of middle school. And that is just the most cruel and lonely time Yes, to experience any type of disfigurement um, mm -hmm. or any yeah. otherness. So, <sighs> yeah, it was, it was tough to read, but I could really... I could relate. And I was like, really thrilled to have you on. So oh, thank you. So um, Krauzon syndrome, is that how you say it? Cru it Cruzon. I always tell people it's like crouton, but with a Z. That's it. That's <laughs> it. I remember it. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about what that is and kind of a little bit about the book too. I guess we kind of jumped right in without any background, but yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry about that. I get excited. No, but, um, <laughs> no, no, no. Um, yeah. Cruzon syndrome is um, it's a craniofacial condition. It's pretty rare, um, but it's basically the bones in the head fuse from the time an infant is born. So when a baby is born, as they get older, right, the skull grows with the rest of the body and it gives room for the brain to grow and develop. Um, but with Cruzon syndrome, the like the sutures are fused and so the skull like physically can't grow. And so if it isn't uh, like caught in time and if like surgeons don't go in there and like release those sutures, um, the brain has nowhere to go. Mm -hmm. And so um, growing like well I shouldn't say growing up when my because uh, I'm an identical twin mm -hmm. and so when uh, my twin sister and I were were babies my mom kept saying like there's something wrong there's something wrong and doctors wouldn't really listen to her because when we were first born uh, we looked healthy that didn't look like there was anything off and then um, as the pressure in our uh, heads got so um, I, I don't know I guess as the pressure's pressure increased our like eyes began to bulge and our heads became like kind of weirdly oblong mm -hmm. um and flat and like we didn't it, you could tell there was something right. not quite right and mm -hmm. we were uh babies number four and five in the family uh so we're the youngest of five and so my parents knew 
like, okay, there's something off. We've had three other kids and right. Not this didn't rodeo. happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they kept telling my mom, like she had postpartum depression and things like that. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's what Cruzon syndrome is. And it takes a lot of um, highly specialized surgeons to go in and they, um, you know, one, expand the skull, but they have to, it's, you know, as you get older, they'll do different surgeries to uh, advance like the middle of the face and then uh, the lower jaw and the upper jaw and the, um, you know, they use screws and plates to kind of keep everything in place. Um, and I always joke that, you know, one day, like a couple hundred years from now, if someone finds my body, <laughs> it's going to be like I was a whole other species, you know, <laughs> with all the hardware. Um, but so the book uh, is called A Face for Picasso, and it's about my identical twin sister and I just growing up with Cruzon syndrome and what it means to be uh, basically it focuses mostly on um, gender norms and uh, beauty standards and what it means to be a, a little girl growing up in a beauty obsessed society with mm -hmm. a face that does not look like other faces. Um, right. Disfigured uh, or facial difference, however you want to refer to it. Um, but we had about 60 surgical procedures but each by the time we graduated from high school. <sighs> and some of that was for medical purposes. Some of it was to have our appearance look closer to the norm. Um, and so thinking I'm, I'm 30 now and thinking about being nine years old and being like, hi, I want my eyes fixed. Hi, can you make <laughs> this straighter? Um, my nose is a little crooked. That's really messed up. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so it compares our, we were compared to a Picasso painting in an article when we were kids. And so it basically, um, the book looks at our experiences and our upbringing through the lens of being compared to Picasso. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tell, tell me a little bit about your views on Picasso now. I, yeah. I absolutely Rush. love that. That was like the, the thread throughout, throughout the book, um, and it opened my eyes a lot because you know I went to Europe and I did the whole the Picasso museums and I have the magnets and the posters and I love his art and now I'm seeing it. I mean, I I, I had heard about the possible being not so nice to women, right. um, but I didn't I didn't know quite the extent of it. So mm -hmm. talk about that a little. Yeah, so um, I'll just say, like, okay, so when my twin sister, uh, Zan, and I were um, kids, we got interviewed for um, an article in the Mary, the French edition of Mary Claire, and so a line in the article says their face resembles work of Picasso, and I didn't find it until years later after a summer of really traumatic surgeries, and I was already really angry, didn't connect with my face, I looked different after surgery than I did when I went to bed. And so it was just kind of a giant mind fuck. Yeah. And I didn't really know what to do with that. And then I saw this article that compared our faces to Picasso and I was so angry and uh, hurt by that because for me, it's like, I was my face. I've always been uh, completely defined by 
my asymmetrical features. If I was bad at math, it was, well, you have crooked eyes. If I was good at something, it was like that somehow made me special and different, but in a positive way, like I couldn't just be normal. And so for me, in a weird, twisted, kind of like dramatic 12-year-old way, someone saying, oh, these girls, their appearance looks kind of like a Picasso painting was basically like comparing us to Picasso himself because I didn't really understand the idea of separating art from the artist when Mm -hmm. it's like, hi, I'm constantly defined by what I look like and what I do as an extension of that. So um, I automatically assumed I was being compared to Picasso. And even before I knew about all of his problematic behaviors and and views and how he treated people it was also offensive because again like I was a young girl I was I grew up in a very uh beauty focused um area in -hmm. California um and so I'm like I'm a girl you're comparing me to an old man a dead artist who paints things with an eye over here a nose over here an ear here like I was just offended on so many levels and Mm -hmm it made me really want to learn more about him because it felt in a weird way, kind of like learning more about my own identity. Mm. And so Picasso was very racist, uh, sexist, misogynistic. He would paint women um, that he was having sex with and having affairs with. um, And he would conceal their identities from like his wives at the time, basically by disfiguring their faces on his Mm. canvas. And so uh, like one, like Dora Mar, who he was with for a while, um, he treated her uh, probably the worst. Um, and he would make her, she was an artist as well, um, and a photographer. And it was like, no, you can't be a photographer anymore. You have to paint. This is a more respectable medium mm-hmm. uh, and things like that. And he just was very toxic and he was physically abusive, verbally abusive, mentally abusive. When uh, Francois Guillaume was going to leave him, it was like, okay, well, I'll cut you off and I'll ruin your reputation Mm -hmm. everywhere. Like you will never basically have a life again. Abuse. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) In every way, in every way. And so I, I use that thread as I find, as I found out more about Picasso growing up, um, it helped me sort of unpack my own experiences because I was so angry a lot, especially in middle school, because as we've talked about, middle school was hard enough as it is. It Mm -hmm. was um, very, very difficult to go back to school, still swollen and bruised with stitches and staples and um, because I wasn't allowed to miss any more school. Um, And I was super angry. And so in weird ways I kind of I don't want to say in a weird way in some ways I guess because I was treated like everything was wrong with me I felt like I was a Picasso I was an abuser Mm -hmm. and the more I learned about him the more I was able to kind of uh, forgive myself I think and allow myself permission the space to feel whatever I felt and to deal with whatever I I needed to in a way that worked for me like and and don't get me wrong being verbally abusive and being an angry teenager uh like and treating people negatively and poorly wasn't okay but I wasn't abuse I I don't know I guess I just it allowed me to see myself more in line with uh the women in Picasso's lives Mm -hmm. as in like my sister and I were abused by the world around us Mm -hmm. and I was angry for being mistreated and that was more 
that was more in line with my experience. I wasn't a Picasso in terms of I was abusive. I was abused. Right. And I was mad about it. Right. And so, yeah, yeah, it just helped me kind of reframe. I don't know if I framed that in a way that's clear, but it just allowed me to kind of take ownership of my own story. Yeah, definitely. So kind of throughout um, childhood and then growing up, the focus for you was beauty or the focus for everybody else was beauty. And then it became the focus for you. Yeah. Um, and how, how can these doctors fix me? Mm-hmm. Um, where are you with that now? I, I like my appearance now. Um, I feel very at home in my own body. Uh, and it took a long time to get there, but <laughs> you know, um, there are things about myself. It's funny. I'm going to, I'll answer this. I swear this has a point. No worries. But I got um, contacted recently by a casting director on Instagram. Actually, I got a message and saying that I think it was TLC was doing or is doing a show um, for people with like physical differences and it like they want people who and they want people who are like body positive and comfortable with themselves to kind of get them set up with plastic surgeons in Beverly Hills and I was like okay if I accept myself why do I need right I don't understand, you know, and I talked to the woman and she was like, no, it's basically like if you like lost some kind of functionality or something and like my right eye waters a lot. And so I was like, "Hmm, maybe I could have them fix that. And I started to like kind of go down this rabbit hole a little bit of like looking in the mirror and being like, hmm, well, my, my nostrils are still two different sizes. I wonder like if they could fix that, you know, I was like, no. Yeah, we're not, we're not doing that. We are not doing that. Um, and so every now, my point is that every now and then I still have those moments where I can find areas of myself that I'm like, hmm, that could be fixed or yeah. that could look better or be better. But I'm at the end of the day, I don't want it. I am me and I don't. I I don't know. I'm so much more than what I look like. And I, I would always say that, but I think for the first time, I truly believe it and feel it. Um, what, can you so, kind of, what can you kind of credit that to? Because I know, like, I can relate to the dissociating from the body and feeling like mm-hmm. you're not in your body. You don't recognize yourself. Right. I had a, a bicycle accident that kind of disfigured my mouth my teeth and everything so I went through it's all good but like almost now even though I was so disembodied and I still have to work on it Mm -hmm. almost like now I can be even more embodied than someone who hadn't gone through that what what do you think yeah I think in a lot of ways it really helped growing up growing up the way that I did as complicated as that might sound Mm -hmm. because um and as you pointed out and as I talk about in the book I didn't have a problem with what I looked like growing up until I learned that I was supposed to um and so for me that was the big um challenge to get through um and I was 
I went through so many different periods of my life where it was like, I think I was the most miserable when I looked my best and I'm using air quotes when I was, uh, you know, according to like Western, you know, beauty standards or whatever. And I was very thin. I felt good about my appearance. I like my face when I like lost weight looked a little bit more symmetrical. I was miserable. I was so unhappy. I didn't feel like myself. Mm-hmm. And I think just a lot of therapy and a lot of trauma therapy specifically and surrounding myself with people who love me and don't focus on appearance mm-hmm. has been so incredible for me. And I think it's been a learning experience over the last, I don't know, even 10 years for my family as well. Um, my family is amazing. I love them all so much uh we didn't always and i say we because i mean everyone in my family didn't always handle things in the best way and looking back we can all be like oh okay Mm -hmm. yeah probably shouldn't have said that or probably shouldn't have done that Mm -hmm. um but the beautiful thing with my family is that everyone has learned so much and there's that underlying commitment to trying to learn and do better and so i think again that permission to have hard times and forgive ourselves and forgive each other and move forward Mm -hmm. has been incredible Mm -hmm. um for my own healing and yeah I, i um i don't know it's a lot of little things, you know, I think part of it is just growing up and being like, I'm, I'm too tired right. <laughs> to care that much. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So I had, um, like I said, kind of similar peer experiences in middle and high school. And I remember being called it. And since yeah, I'm 36 now, so however long it's been in the past couple years, people have come out of the woodwork on social media and things and said, Hey, you know, I was an asshole when we were kids. I'm really sorry. Have you, have you had any people reach out to you in that way? So many. And I have to say, and I I say this like kind of jokingly, but also if I don't laugh about it, I'm going to be super offended (laughs) and cry. (laughs) Um, I've had people that I don't even remember reach out to me and tell like apologize for things that I didn't know they did. And Mm. I'm like, okay, I could have done it. I didn't know you said that. (laughs) I didn't know people thought that. Thank you so much. I'm going to go. Um, but no, seriously, like, yes, I have. And in a lot of ways, uh, it's been part of my journey in healing is kind of letting some of that go. And there were times when, you know, and as I talk in the book, I didn't treat people in a, the way that I should have. And I wasn't necessarily the friend I wish I had been to people. And when I started writing, there were some people that I reached out to and was like, hey, I just wanted to let you know that I'm really sorry that I said this to you and that I treated you in that way. Uh, I was going through my own stuff. I took it out on you and you didn't deserve that. And I'm just, I'm just really sorry. Mm-hmm. And to have them respond so well and to be so understanding and for them to take, you know, ownership of like their part in our falling out or um, just even just say, Hey, thanks. Like I'm, I'm rooting for you. Things like that was wonderful and really powerful for me um and then to hear from other people 
who were really not nice. Like there's one guy um, who keeps popping up on my Facebook and he sent me so many friend requests and like, I've gotten a couple of messages apologizing and I'm like, I'm just not interested in going down that route. Like I hear you. Thank you. But like Mm -hmm. onward. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, I don't know. In some ways there are certain people where like not to sound cold, but I'm like, thank you. I don't need it. Right. I'm good. I just kind of, I had to tell myself that I was accepting apologies that I knew were never going to come. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. And yeah. so when people do apologize, I'm like, okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. But yeah. You're a good person. I mean, still after all the fucking like poor <laughs> torment, you're apologizing to people for responding in a way that for me, when reading was super cathartic, I was like, yes, get him, Ariel. <laughs> And that's the thing. That's actually what I'm working on in therapy now. When you grow up learning that or like believing and internalizing that everything is your fault and that it's, you know, other people are nice for letting you take up space. Right. And that there's something fundamentally wrong with the fact that you exist Mm -hmm. and you feel like you shouldn't even breathe. Um, That's a lot. And so there are times when I apologize and then I get mad and I'm like, I take it back. (laughs) I'm not sorry. Um, It's like a little kid, you know, who's like, I'm sorry, never mind. Um, But no, it's something that I am like also learning to work through um, as well, because you're, yeah, when I read the book and think about my story and try to like remove myself from it, I'm like, well, fuck them. They deserved it. Like mm-hmm. you did nothing wrong. But then like my overly empathetic part that knows what it's like exactly. to feel so small and so hurt. is like, no, I don't want you to feel how I felt. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Right. How can I make it better? Um, it's hard. <laughs> I yeah. have a lot of feelings. <laughs> no, I get it. I get it. And crazy part too, is these people come back and, oh, you know, so sorry it didn't mean it i was a kid and you're you're thinking like so was i like the things that these exactly. people said were like the be all end all at the time yeah. it's like you yeah. believed like you said that you're not even you know valuable enough or valuable as a person and they get to just come back 20 years and apologize and everything's fine um yeah i had yeah. someone reach out recently too and i said I'm not sure you remember everything you said and how, you know, yeah. And I appreciate it, but same like you, like I'm not interested. Um, yeah. 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 It gets to the point where you just got to protect your peace. Yeah. And I, I don't know if you had adults in your life kind of treat you that way or support the other kids but like that was something that was also really hard. Like if the adults reached out to me and was like, "Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't think about that," I would probably tell them to f off. Truly, right. <laughs> um, and, and that's not something that I do normally um, because that was just that happened so much, and I think was did an even bigger number on me and my self esteem than kids being assholes. But when yeah. adults support it and adults perpetuate that you really believe you deserve it. Yeah. That's craziness. I, the whole, well, a couple of things. Your one, the one male teacher, remind me his 
name or at least the name in the book. Oh, I don't even I can't remember the name in the book. I had to change him at the oh, okay. <laughs> uh, Was it Mr. Tomlinson or something like that? I uh, think that was the principal. Okay. Um I can look it up though. Re- either way, there was a there yes. was a male teacher and yes. by that time it was high school, right? That was middle school. That was middle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to kind of tell that story for the listener and I I envied you a little bit because that probably doesn't sound right, but um, having your parents be so supportive and having Mm -hmm. your dad there and like popping off at the guy, like I needed that. That's something I didn't have. So when you said you, when you brought up adults, I thought you were going to ask, I don't know if you had supportive adults. And I was like, not really. So (laughs) I would deal Mm. with this at school and then go home and just be very alone as well. Um, So I'm thankful for your parents for you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry. Like I hear things like that and it, it hurts my heart because I would not have gotten through everything if I didn't have my parents. Yeah. And so the fact that you had to go through things and not have that support system at home, I'm really sorry that you had to do that. Okay. Um, Thank you. So I had a teacher in middle school who was – Horrible, horrible. I looked him up. He's a principal now. So, oh God. Yeah, that's terrifying. Um, but he, when I, okay, so when I went back to school, I had part of my head shaved because they cut my head open from ear to ear. So it's just an incision all the way across the scalp. And I was missing hair. It was gross. The school said I couldn't miss any more classes. So I, I had no choice. I had to go back. Um, and my mom had like sent a note to the office and to the teacher saying like I was going to be wearing a hat and it was really cute it was like light pink and it was like a baseball hat with like a Nike check in white and like you know I got to pick out what hat I wanted to wear and I'm not a hat person at all Um, and so I was like I'm gonna rock my hat and I wore like a white t-shirt and and blue jeans and I was just feeling fabulous you know uh, a couple of times that I wore it and I was like, I am ready. I'm ready to do this. Right. And uh, on the day that I actually went back to school, I wore the hat as well, thinking like, okay, like everyone knows I'm going to have to wear a hat mm-hmm. in class. That's fine. And so when I went to class, I like walk in um, and the teacher's like, you need to remove your hat. And I'm like, I, I, my mom sent a note, like, I can't, I had surgery, like, I'm missing hair, and he's like, okay, 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 like, that's fine, and so I go in, and in front of the whole class, you, like, basically scolded me, and it's like, I said, take off your hat, like, I don't want to ask you again, and I, like, I, I was 12, and I panicked, and I was like, I can't, I don't have hair, you know, and, like, people were staring at me, and some people were laughing, and I was just so mortified Mm -hmm. and so like that was the start (laughs) of of being in this guy's class and he was super creepy he would walk by small girls hair Mm. tell them they smelled good they were super pretty today like just really inappropriate and gross and um he would he really targeted me in class he would say I didn't do homework that I did mm-hmm. um and at one point he said he was missing like weeks of assignments for me basically and I like had photocopied them because I wasn't the greatest I was I was depressed I was traumatized like school was not my number one priority mm-hmm. and but my grade was super low and I was like I'm gonna 
you know, work on this. I'm going to do everything. And I was really proud of myself for, for getting my homework done every day. And my dad's uh, workshop and office was right next to our house. So I'd go up to his office and I photocopied it, like keeping track. And I was just like really on it mm. you know, for a little mm-hmm. bit. And I was just so proud of myself until he like pulled me aside and told me that I had to uh hand in all the work and I was like I did it you know I have it right here and he basically said well how should I believe you and I snapped at him Uh I like lost it and my sister walked into the classroom at the time and saw it and she's like you're like don't talk to him like that you know and I was like I will talk to him however I want to Uh I'm I'm saying this to him and so my my parents tried to get us removed from uh, his class and uh, too many people were transferring out of the class at the same time. And so, like, while we're waiting for that, he would, like, there was one time um, <laughs> where I submitted homework and there was one problem, like, I didn't know how to do. And so mm-hmm. I wrote on it, like, I don't know how to do this one. And so naturally, he called me to the front of the room to have me do that problem on the board. Mm-hmm. That's just mean. And wasn't that in um, front of, like, when he the, was being observed or something? Yeah. yeah. The vice principal was uh, watching him for the day. It's like, yeah, observing him teaching for the day, probably because so many people were transferring out of the yeah, class. It's like, that's um, a red flag right there. Yeah. <laughs> they could yeah. let him go. Uh, now he's a principal? Now he's a principal at another school. Um, I, I pulled the, like creepy LinkedIn stalking. Uh-huh. I'm like, what's the point of social media if you don't uh-huh. use it? <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's sad. Yeah. Um, but yeah, my parents met with him and the principal and the guidance counselor. And my dad basically called him out for being a creep and treating us terribly. Um, and we were finally removed from the class. But he eventually went on to tell people when they asked why I wasn't in class that my sister and I got taken out of his class because our faces were too distracting yeah. to the other students. That's... I can't believe, is... I can't believe yeah. you can say that as a yeah. teacher and there's just no repercussions. Yep. Nope. Wow. So that, and then the, the cheerlead or the, not the cheerleading, the, the queen, the prom queen or, or whatever it was. Yeah, it, uh, yeah, it was a cheer. It was for the cheer team. Okay. It was the homecoming, homecoming princess yeah. for the local cheer squad who didn't believe that my sister could be uh, crowned the homecoming princess and like tried to take a tally of like who voted for her because she thought she should get it right. instead and like led this whole like mission. And it's like, calm down. Like no one cares. Right. About, and- like it's exciting. But yeah, yeah, and um, even the parent was involved. Yeah, she was a coach and the girl's mom, and she was um, kind of helping her leading the charge um, and calling my mom a liar, telling my sister she somehow cheated, and it was like none of us even knew that my sister won um and just totally ruined the whole experience for her and and they um the coach the problematic coach and then the girl who was mean ended up leaving the team because they wouldn't make her homecoming princess yeah and take my sister's like crown or whatever sayonara (laughs) yeah bye like 
to me, like, I think back on that and I'm like, okay, these people needed another hobby. Who has time for that? Well, it's like you said, I mean, if it's this culture of beauty and being, being the most beautiful and being the best. Yeah. Um, and you know, some parents are still like that, you know? Um, but then some, I was really relieved. Was it the, I don't remember who it was, but somebody finally put an end to it. I don't know if it was the principal or what, but yeah, I was was, relieved (laughs) to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a good example for me of when adults do listen and do care Mm -hmm. that there can be, um, a positive impact there. But when you have adults like the main coach whose daughter was difficult, um, it just, again, further perpetuates the belief that people who are different deserve to be treated poorly. So the main, um, the director of the organization stepping in was definitely helpful and gave me some hope. Yeah. I'm like, somebody's got to do something here. This is insane. Yeah. Um, so would you say you kind of touched on it at the beginning, but that this, that you wrote this book a to get your story out there. And you were talking about how writing is kind of healing and allows you to process. Um, so would you also say it's, it's there for any other young girl or even boy who's going through something like this to kind of find that hope that you're talking about? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I, um, I definitely wrote it one, like you mentioned, cause I wanted to tell my story and I wanted to be able to, um, be honest about what I went through. Um, but also for the craniofacial community, I guess I want to reach teens and, and kids and, and even adults, um, regardless of whether they have a facial difference or not. But I definitely had this community in mind um, in deciding what exactly I wanted to share with people. Mm -hmm. Um, Because for the people who do have facial differences and craniofacial conditions, I wanted them to be able to, you know, walk into a bookstore and find a story um, that that understood what they were going through and to help people feel um, seen. But I also right. wanted families as well and friends of people going through this stuff to get a better understanding. And so mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, yes, it was for hope, but it was also for validation, I think. Right. I think I, I was just double checking. I had come across an article or, or a, um, opinion piece about uh, by you about the movie wonder yes <laughs> can you talk a little bit about your perspective on that um yeah go ahead yeah no um so there <laughs> a few years ago there was an article that said i was leading the charge against wonder and i was like excuse me <laughs> um <laughs> i was like is that going to be my claim to fame <laughs> um, <laughs> kind of funny but um so wonder for anyone that doesn't know is about a boy augie pullman who has a craniofacial condition and a facial difference and 
It was written by a woman who does not have a facial difference. It was actually written because the author was um, with her kids out getting ice cream at like an ice cream shop. And there was a kid with Treacher Collins syndrome um, who had a facial difference eating ice cream and the author's kid like kind of freaked out and lost it and was super upset and offensive and like pointing and staring and afraid of this other child. Mm -hmm. And so the author went home and decided it was her place to write a book about a child with a craniofacial condition. Make that make sense. Anyway, (laughs) uh, sorry. I'm trying to, I'm trying to, you know, get better at respecting that, like this book does, and it did, and it does continue to mean a lot to some people in the craniofacial community, because there's, again, no stories about, you know, that contain experiences like they had growing up. And Mm -hmm. so in that way, I can appreciate it. And this book came out in 2012. uh, And the movie came out in, I believe, 2017. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's really problematic, in my opinion, because one, I think the whole inspiration behind the story is really offensive. I can't imagine, I don't have kids, but if I did, if my child (laughs) made fun of someone else and like, publicly humiliated them in that way there is no world in which I would go home and think that it was my place to then go write a book about a perspective I don't have or understand mm-hmm. um but you know whatever <laughs> um <laughs> and it was it's very it it touches on inspiration porn a lot and for anyone that doesn't know what that is it's just this idea that basically people with disabilities are uh, inspirational simply because they have a disability mm-hmm. like you might see videos for example there was a video floating around facebook a while ago of a wheelchair user vacuuming and people are like oh my god that's so inspiring that's amazing and it's like Okay, so you're telling me that if a normal, like, I don't want to say normal, but like on a normal day, a typical day, you see an able-bodied non-wheelchair user vacuuming, would you be taking a video and putting that on the (laughs) internet and saying how inspiring? No, you wouldn't. So why, like, it's really condescending. And so it's the same idea with with Wonder. Uh, He's it says you're a wonder Augie and he's just this source of inspiration for everyone around him because he teaches people you know basically to not be assholes Mm -hmm. and to not treat him like crap because of what he looks like Mm -hmm. and people are mean um he's bullied a lot he he's very I don't know and the actor that plays him isn't someone with a facial difference right so with a lot of makeup and prosthetics um and so yeah i mean i could i I don't want to get too much on my my soapbox here but it just prioritizes voices outside of the community Mm -hmm. and it really misses the mark on a lot of the experiences i think Mm -hmm. um you know having a craniofacial condition is an incredibly expensive thing um there was an article about my twin sister and i when we were babies that called us the million dollar twins because our surgeries were so expensive and i always tell people that my mom when she read that laughed hysterically because she's like million dollars like no it was way more than that (laughs) and yeah like it was multi-million dollars in operations and you know to highlight 
a fan and I get that it's it's fake but at the same time when people aren't exposed to stories like this they watch wonder or they read wonder and they walk away thinking they get it now mm-hmm. and they don't get it now because they don't even understand the actual experience and like in the book and in the movie like Augie's sister uh, is kind of jealous of the attention that he gets mm. which is like excuse me mm-hmm I don't know. Just there's just a lot of little things, and like at the end of the year, he gets an award for being different, basically, right. and he's celebrated, and everyone claps because he's different and he exists. Mm-hmm. So it's just a tool, basically, to teach other people um, that people with disabilities and physical differences aren't equal, but they're just something to be pitied. Mm-hmm. and that we should be nice to them but not because they're human but because we feel bad for them yeah and, yeah so what i mean with your book mm-hmm. is there is there a hope that your book will teach people not to be assholes i mean i guess my question is what is going to teach people not to be assholes why are kids that way and why do they come back 20 years later like oh i didn't mean any of that shit sorry um yeah or even the adults i mean what Mm -hmm. uh, yeah i don't know is it is it education or simply you know visibility the story coming from the actual voice that experienced it or what is what do you think i think it's a combination of all of those things i think there's something to be said for um authenticity as well i think in a lot of ways you know I don't want to hate on Wonder Mm -hmm. too much because that is someone, that was someone's dream to write that book and Mm -hmm. they did it. So rock on. Mm -hmm. It's hard to write a book. It's hard to get published. Okay. I can, you know, personal growth, you know? Um, But like, I think part of the, the shortcoming in my opinion is that it isn't real. And so it is my hope that by sharing real stories and, and being really honest about the impact, the psychological and emotional impact. It isn't getting an award at the end of the year and suddenly everyone likes you and it's fine. Mm-hmm. It isn't making friends and so everything's okay now. It isn't, oh, I finished surgery. I don't have any more surgery. So great, we're mm-hmm. ready to rock. Um, it is consistent trauma responses mm-hmm. to experiences and to people and to things people said it's learning to communicate in new ways and so recognizing like trauma alters the brain Mm -hmm. you know it changes us and as great as it is to see a story about a little kid being embraced and people realizing let's not be you know let's not be mean let's treat everyone the way we want to be treated that only goes so far right um and so it is my hope that with visibility and with amplifying more stories my story is only one and it is really my hope in in writing a face for picasso and in getting my story out there that it helps make room for more stories and so the more stories we get out there and the more people realize um how people with facial differences are treated and the the lasting impact of of what we experience mm-hmm. I think that will go a long way and I think that's part of and part of what I hope you know anyway sets my book apart mm-hmm. is that it is honest and real and there's no sugar 
coating the truth mm. or wrapping things up in a, a nice, pretty little bow. Yeah. Um, it's, I like to think it's hopeful. Oh yeah. Like, you know, and I think it, when people look me up and see, Hey, I have, I'm, I'm doing well. I have hard days sometimes, but I'm human. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's the real stories and the education and the um, spreading awareness that is going to create that change. Yeah. Um, I'm an elementary school teacher, so wonder has been in my classroom and around, and it's one of the kids' favorites. So it's interesting mm-hmm. to hear that other perspective. I Do you think that as a culture, I mean, you know, I don't know how how often you're around kids or or whatever. Um, I am observing that kids are becoming more empathetic nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, do you think as kind of as a society that we're going in that direction? I think so. Mm-hmm. And I hope so. And I, I think, you know, as much as social media has, is uh, creating problems in the world, I do think that it is doing amazing things mm-hmm. for uh, underrepresented voices and marginalized people who wouldn't otherwise have the platform. And I think it has shown um, companies that there is a market Right. for diverse voices and diverse stories and that people need and want these diverse stories and that just telling the same things over and over again by the same people and the same few voices no <laughs> no we don't want it anymore yeah. um and so i agree i do think that people are becoming more empathetic because i think with the access to so much information yeah. and the, the personal stories like being able to go on twitter and read through threads of how specific things impacted people and read again, like I was saying earlier, like it's okay. One person's experience is their experience, Mm -hmm. but reading so many different takes on the same topic or the same issue and seeing all the different like nuanced ways that things affect people really does force you to stop and think, okay, sometimes it's bigger than my perspective and my feelings and it's important to consider other people. Yeah. So yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. I, I, as a member of the LGBT community, having access to those stories when I was an adolescent would have been huge. Mm -hmm. I think it is definitely, um, like you said, as much, as much of an issue social media can sometimes be, I think it, it's done a lot of really good things too. Yeah, definitely. Um, so are you planning another book at all? Yeah. Okay. I, uh, <laughs> I'm in the early stages of writing too. I, I bounce around a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, not memoir though. Okay. One is kind of like a gothic horror. Mm. Um, and the, yeah, I said that at my book launch and people were like, what? <laughs> and I kind of laughed. <laughs> um, and the other is another YA book. And um, But I really feel so strongly about continuing to write uh, uh, characters with um, facial difference and creating facial uh, conditions so that I can, I don't know, I want to be part of this movement to help normalize things. It's like I told my story and some people are like, when's the next part of your, when's the next memoir going to come out? And I was like, 
thank you so much, but probably never. <laughs> um, give me 20 more years. Right. No. Um, because I, I feel like, you know, I, I've wanted to write this book since I was 12. I got to do it. And there's a part of myself that's like, okay, I'm at peace now. I'm yeah. going to put that aside. Yeah. I want to do fun stuff, things that I'm so excited about. Mm-hmm. And I love uh, gothic horror, mm. like so much. I love ghost stories. Mm-hmm. And um so I want to kind of combine all of my interests and passions into one one book. Cool. And I think, you know, the tropes that show up in horror around facial difference and mm. disability is uh, something I really want to disrupt. Yeah. Flip on its head a little bit. So. That's so interesting. That reminds me of the day that I got into that accident. You know, I was trying to do a, a BMX trick <laughs> when I was oh, jumping okay. my bike off of a off of an outdoor stage, um, which I had done several times, but didn't work out this time. But I remember when I, I didn't want to go home because I knew my mother was going to lose it. It's like her worst fear is confirmed. So I ran over to my friend's house first. And when I looked in the mirror, you know, I'm in shock. And I, I said, Oh, it's fine. I'm just wearing a mask. I'm just wearing a Halloween mask. Right. And yeah, associating that disfigurement with horror. Yeah. That's not something I had thought about. But in two, like the next morning, and I could relate, you know, I didn't have multiple surgeries, but the morning after the accident, looking in the mirror and feeling like, oh, shit, this really happened. This wasn't a nightmare. This wasn't. Right. And who is this person in the mirror? Yeah. Yeah. That would be, I would love to read that and can't wait to have you back on if you're interested. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Um, yeah. So that's, that's kind of where I'm at now. Um, but thank you for sharing some of your experiences with me too. Yeah. It's always so interesting to hear, um, about other people's, stories and I don't know the way they process things yeah in my memoir that I'm working on you know it's about that accident and the impacts but I kind of like zoomed really quick through high school because I didn't want to deal with it so reading your book has definitely caused me to feel like I could slow down and and maybe write it out a little less uh, avoidantly but it's hard. I know, I think you said it's like you sat down and every time you started to write, you would just cry because it's like, it's reliving mm-hmm. that trauma. So yeah, I'm really glad that <clears throat> you were able to write the book and that it's out there and that I can help kind of spread the word. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, the last thing I'll say really fast is that I think it's totally understandable to want to write around. Mm issues you know especially when they're hard and like you're saying in high school like it's so easy to write everything except like the one part you're supposed to hone in on Mm -hmm. and um one thing that uh I don't know if if you've tried this but like uh, grabbing my iPhone and opening the notes app and doing speech to text Mm. and just um like calling a friend or a sister and being like I'm gonna tell you this story story about what happened someone I feel comfortable confiding in right and and doing it that way it's like not something I want to talk about but it's also someone that was 
there or knew about it or something. And so there's not that shame associated with it. And so acting like, okay, well, no one's going to read this. I'm just, I'm just chatting. And then seeing at the end what, um, what I said and looking through the notes app and then kind of cleaning it up and adding it into the book that way. Just, I don't know. I don't know if that helpful at all. That is very helpful for me. I think it's easier, oddly easier. I don't know to talk about because there's a narrative I built and that's what I repeat. And here's the story. (laughs) But when you really get into the dark, depressing, painful details, it's hard, but I'm, I'm almost ready to reapproach the draft, (laughs) but yeah, good advice. I'm going to try it. Yeah. It might be helpful. It might not, but there you go. (laughs) I appreciate it. Well, thanks so much for sitting down. I'm really glad we were able to connect. Yeah, thank you. I really, I really appreciate it.